Radio Parfait. Itches. I try to ignore the itching so that I don't scratch. Goddamn mosquitoes fucking everywhere. It's going to be the next plague. Well, I mean, the murder hornets thing didn't didn't really pull out uh, the way we all thought it was going to. Which, thank you to the murder hornets for, for looking at the... The current status. S- the and... situation going on in America and going, you know what? This might just be the wrong time. Yes. We'll hold off till 2021. We'll give you a year deferment before we fuck all of your shit up. I mean, we already have killer bees. Do we really need murder hornets? I mean, that's not for us to decide. <laughs> it's for the hern- hornets to decide. Hermits. The hern- for the hornets. Herda, herda, hornets. Ferda. <laughs> Club Ferda. There we go. All right. Welcome to Open a Fucking Book. I'm Kevin. I'm Stephanie. I hope everybody's doing well. And uh, enjoyed our second episode of Mary Walson. My fucking ankle. Stop scratching. Just think of something I'm else. I'm not the type of person that could just not scratch something when away. it itches. I can't. Yes, you can. You know how many places I have on me right now that are itchy and I'm not scratching? You have more willpower than I do. Actually, I do not. No, you probably don't. When it comes to itching, you have more willpower than I do. <laughs> I have a, a strong urge to scratch right below my kneecap on my left leg right now. I'm horrible with this shit. It's okay. okay. But the more you talk about Mary Wollstonecraft for this third and final episode of hers. Third and final episode. Everything comes to a crescendo. Not really. It just got it. You know, it was it was the 1700s, so so we, it comes to when she dies. Apparently, she's obviously not still alive, which that would be the story to tell. If she, yeah, if she was still over alive. over 400 years old. <laughs> yeah. All right. So when we last left Mary, she had just unsuccessfully tried to commit suicide, and Emily had decided to send her to Scandinavia to find his lost ship. So it took weeks to find a boat, and to wait for the right winds to sail on. They finally find a boat, and then they're all ready to go, and they're like, oh, we can't leave yet because the wind's going the wrong way. Would have been nice if they had motors. Yeah, or somebody oaring, you know. Uh, Rowing, not oaring. (laughs) (laughs) Oaring. Well, it's like when you're sewing something, you're needling. Yes. Yes, I mean, it's... it's, it's The, the, The tool is the verb. Yes. Okay. There we go. From our from our grammar student. Yes, I'm sorry. That was <sighs> horrible. So in the meantime, she went and visited the town of Beverly, the town that, you know, one of the towns that she was in when she was a kid. It's a town that she loved so much back then. If you remember from the first episode, she thought it was this cosmopolitan place with all these extravagant people. She saw it then as a beautiful town with uh, sophistication. And now she saw it as diminutive, diminutive, and the people were closed-minded, unambitious, and ignorant. She was struck by the contrast between her own life and theirs, quote, I could not help wondering how they could thus have vegetated whilst I was running over a world of sorrow, snatching up pleasure, and throwing off prejudices. 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 
Even though she had suffered, or perhaps because she had suffered, she felt herself greatly improved by her experiences. These people who have lived in the same place all their days did not know how strange and curious the world could be. She saw how suspicious they were of outsiders and how they were fearful of change, how limited their lives seemed. That, oh my gosh, that sounds so much like the community we live in. Every day I grow more and more tired of living in this town because of (laughs) how small it is, how everybody knows everybody and everybody's in everybody's business. I grew up in this town, so it's not nothing. You grew up in a small town. I did, and I hated it. So I moved to a bigger city where there was more of a population and people didn't know me and I didn't have to deal with that crap. I, I knew a small group of people and I was fine with that. But then I moved to another small town with you and it's even smaller than the town I grew up in. Yeah, it's, it's, it's but about 5,000. It seems like everybody's the same religion. Everybody's the same we have, political stance. We have stance. many different de- uh, denominations of Christianity here, and that's about it. But mostly everyone's Catholic. No, Catholic is a... It, it's a it's big here. There is a, the Catholic Church. I don't think the Catholic school is running anymore. And we have a large Lutheran church with a Lutheran school, which I went to kindergarten and preschool there. And we went to that church for a while. But my poor mother, we pretty much terrorized her every Sunday when she tried to take us. So eventually she just stopped taking us. So I was Lutheran for the first few years of my life. And it's about this should happen, and we're not going to get into that right now. Um, we have a few Methodist church. We have a Baptist church. But I don't worry about any of the churches. We have Pentecostal church around the outskirts of town, which is the one I actually grew up going to. Uh, I don't pay attention to the fucking churches because I don't know what the net church is. I guess it's I just a re- I think it's just a regular community Christian church. Um, I don't pay attention to any churches around here because I am an avid, scathing, in-your-face atheist, and I don't give a fuck about any of that shit. Which is one of the reasons why nobody really has anything to do with me in this town. So for me, a small town's great because even though it's a it's a small town where everybody knows each other, I go out of my way to not know the majority of the people. Yeah, but I'm involved with PTO. Mm-hmm. I'm involved with the school. My kids play sports, so I know a lot of the parents. And I go just... to all that sports shit, too. I don't go out, uh, unless I went to school with them, I don't go out of my way to get to know the parents. Fuck them. I don't give a shit. As long as the kid's out there doing what he's supposed to do, fine. Fuck. Well, I, my kids are friends with the kids, so I, I have to get to know the parents. Mm, I guess the troubles of being a mother versus the troubles of being a father. The mother, you're kind of hidden with it all, and father, I could just say, yeah, that's her thing. And I just stay <laughs> back. Yeah, it, it, but it's just, it surprises me with how ignorant some of the parents are. With, and even the leaders in the community, the restaurant owners, it's we it's live in troubling. A, we live in a primarily Republican small town. red area in a blue state. Yes. And it is annoying to yes. be some of the only blue people running, walking around all these red people. That sounded very racist. It, <laughs> it is there. It's trouble being obviously liberal when you're walking around just surrounded by conservatives and i'm i'm not even so much liberal as you know more of a moderate because i there are some conservative situations that i agree with but because i did grow up in church 
And well, I, so did I. That's one of the reasons I'm not anymore. Yeah, but I still have my faith. Okay. So I, I, I get it, but I have an open mind. I have an open mind too. Again, that's why I switched. Because <laughs> I'm not. I'm not. When it comes to other areas, I used to be. But, very, I used to be Republican. I used to be very conservative. I, I used to say things that horrify me now. At, to the point where I actually said things to my parents who are very conservative, very Republican, very evangelistic. And I have said things to them in the past where they both went, no, don't, no, don't say that. And I, I completely. They say some racist they things do, sometimes. These weren't racist things. I don't, I've never, I don't say racist things, never had said racist things. I'm not, I was never a racist. This, that's not. Your parents. My right. father, mostly. Yes. Um, has, has said some things, yes. But in the past, there has been some things as far as other ways that extreme right wing people look at the world that I have said that both of my parents said, bring it down a little bit. I have done a comp- Complete 180. I went from falling off of the ledge so far I was on the right-hand side to falling off so far on the left because I've, I've completely changed my view on everything, which pretty much happened when I stopped going to church. But yes, I understand what you're talking about. This does this is a lot like how you that, view. Yeah, because we're saying that. Yeah. You know, you said Mary Wollstonecraft reminded you a lot of me. Yes. And I'm saying I can see it now because the way she goes back to this town that she once loved and she could see how all the people are changed and stupid and they only care about, you know, their role in society, the way they look. The well, way... they care about their very small pocket. Right. That's kind of In their yeah. community. That's kind of what you see a lot with, with kids who go off to big colleges. Most big colleges are pretty liberal. And because they're filled with so much diversity and so many, so many people from so many different walks of life who have lived in so many different types of cultures and came from different, you know, income levels that you go thinking that the whole world is this and you come back realizing that the entire world is not what you thought it was. And now you go back to this little pocket you were in and things just don't feel right. I know a lot of people who didn't want their kids going to big schools. Because they said, and I quote, those are a little too liberal for me. Yeah, I get that. So, so anyway, yeah, her, her life experiences have completely changed who she is and her outlook on a lot of things. And now she sees that all these people that she thought were so great back then aren't as great as what she had originally thought. But finally, they were able to sail. And her, Marguerite, and Fanny arrived in Gothenburg, Sweden on June 27th. The weather was horrible, cold, rainy. Mary even slipped on some wet rocks and knocked her head on the ground, resulting in a cut on her head and the lack of consciousness for about 15 minutes. Ooh. Yeah, that's kind of that's borderline brain problems. Of course, Mary wrote to Gilbert and explained the situation, to which he replied with little to no sympathy. I think we've all come to the fact that we none of us like Gilbert very much. Mary wrote back saying she would stop criticizing him, but then she contradicted herself, closing the letter with a meticulous recitation of Gilbert's flaws, dissecting him as though she were reviewing a bad book. She said he was irresponsible, he was fearful, he was selfish, He was like Hamlet, unable to decide what to do 
or how to act. Understandably, Emily did not write back for several days. I mean, that makes sense. Even back then with her becoming a feminist of sorts, you know, she could clearly describe every fault in a man. And I mean, that's, that's kind of like me too. Before I met you, if, if a man pissed me off, I knew exactly what to say to make them fucking cry and to hurt them where it counted, not physically, but emotionally and mentally. Yeah, I'm more of an enigma to you as far as what you could say to make me cry because I'm kind of emotionally stagnant. <laughs> no, it's I know what to say to you. It's just that I don't want to ever say those things to you. And that's the problem I got. Well, if you know what to say to make me cry, then it's obviously something you've thought about before. No. <laughs> she stalls in her speech. <laughs> when Kevin and I first got together. Uh, no, we don't need to go over all that shit. Okay, well, that's how you know I... That's not going to make me cry. No, not that, but... Now you know what I thought about it. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. I, I could have been a vindictive bitch, but I was, I'm an adult, and I grew up, and... Well, thank, thank God for that. Carry on. Okay. So they were able to stay with Elias Bachman, Emily's business partner, if you remember from the second episode, while they were in town. Fanny was finally able to play with other children... Elias had uh, some children of his own about the same age. And this allowed Mary a few hours to herself each day, a time she used to refine her criticisms of Gilbert. (laughs) (laughs) Each day, and sometimes several times a day, she bent over her writing desk, wielding her formidable pen, bombarding him with accusations and questions, like, would he really meet her in Europe? If she found his ship, would he really stop devoting himself to a life of commerce? Was he capable of being a father and a husband? As in Paris, their separation gave Mary the room she needed to develop her ideas. She was intent on proving that she suffered not because of her own weakness or any intrinsic intrinsic flaw, but because of her capacity to have feelings, true feelings, and his inability to have any. My problem is I feel too much. Your problem is is you don't feel at all. That's pretty much what she's saying. Yeah, I I get that. That's a that's a valid argument. I suppose you could say the same thing about us sometimes because because sometimes you could be very emotional. You can. I can. And sometimes I could just not fucking care about anything. Because you get too far into your head and then it feels like you're far away and. Yeah, I yeah. suppose, but I think that's how a lot of women and men are. Yeah, honestly, I don't think it's I don't think we're special in any way when it comes to that. I think it's just some... no, it's normal, yeah. and it's it's normal to feel that way for both of us. And I think a lot of people forget that even though she was this powerhouse, as feminist, she was still a human being, and she was still a woman with womanly needs and humanly needs, and that kind of bleeds through later on, um, especially when we start talking about her uh, legacy. So the more she wrote, the more Mary discovered that there was a certain power to being the abandoned one. Being abandoned had two meanings. Being left behind, but also being wild or living outside the law. She didn't have to bow to the will of a man. With the loss of a lover came the freedom from restraint. The more she wrote, the more she saw her suffering as evidence of her superiority over Gilbert. 
She had moved from writing about the abuse of women in general to writing about her own suffering. Having experienced a man's betrayal, she would now bear witness against him, and in the spirit of her rights of women, she refused to submit to her dis dismissal gracefully. You almost, almost feel sorry for Gilbert. He's no match for Mary when it came to a, quote, fight in ink. And she proceeded to tear him up one side and down the other. Yeah, that reminds me. <laughs> I love her. I do. I, I wish she was like our age today and I could be her best friend. She got out to do some sightseeing. She wasn't big on the town or its people. A city full of Gilberts. All anyone cared about was money. But she loved the countryside, climbing on rocks and walking through fields and on beaches. Her compulsion to record Gilbert's failings and analyze the dimensions, origins, and gravity of his sins gradually faded. And in its place, she jotted down notes, not only about Sweden and the Swedes, but what it was like to be an English woman recovering from a tragic love affair in the land of the Vikings, where the fields were a blaze of green and the nights came creeping in long after midnight. Because it gets darker at different times there than it does everywhere else because they're so high fucking up on the earth. Yeah. The exercise was therapeutic. She could feel herself slowly returning to health, physically and mentally. Alone at her desk, she spent hours describing the solace that nature had to offer. However, Mary did, Mary did have a job to do, so she set off to interview people about Emily's ship to no avail. She decided to head to Tonsberg, Norway, to speak to an old employee of Emily's. It was a long journey. She decided to leave Fanny with Marguerite. It was the longest she would ever be without her child. It was terrifying and exciting all at the same time. We've all had to leave our children at some point for whether it's the first day of kindergarten or, or daycare or you're going on a trip with somebody or, or honey, when we went on our honeymoon, we were gone for a while. So The longest I've ever been away from my children was when I went to visit a friend in Minnesota. And Minnesota? Shut the fuck up. <laughs> She's out there. She's listening. She knows who she is, and she's laughing just as hard as I am. When oh, actually, I'm laughing at both of you because you both probably say it the same way. No, she doesn't say it the way I do. I don't know why I say it like that. It's just how either. I've always said it. Minnesota. <laughs> Shut it. <laughs> but yeah, I was there. It was like a what four day trip. Uh, three, something, something like three and a half day, something like that. I think you left was it super early on a Friday morning and came back. I know my. So I get my boys every other weekend because I'm divorced with, with children. So uh, you were gone. You had left before my boys came over, but they were still here when you came back. Yeah, well, because so I, it was I a, came back on a sun, yeah, so late it was a Sunday. Th it was a three to four day trip. This is a much longer trip she's going on, by the way. Yeah, but that, being away from my kids, it was, and being away from you, too, it was like gut wrenching. I was like, "Oh my god, he's gonna kill my kids, or my kids are gonna drive him nuts." And I would only slightly maim them. I wouldn't kill them. <laughs> my kids were here, so I wasn't I wasn't murdering anybody while my boys were here. I don't want to scar them like that. Oh, <laughs> funny. Yeah. Uh, but no. And then I was like, "God, what if they miss me so much?" Because I have separation anxiety too. Well, sure. Anytime most my daughter goes to her dad's, yeah, I most, freak most out. Parents have separation anxiety from their kids at some point. Uh, I go 
long stretches without seeing my boys because again I'm divorced and my ex-wife has uh physical <laughs> she has physical custody of them but we both have but we have joint legal custody but she has them more and I haven't seen them in a very long time because of the whole covid thing because I have two sons with very varying degrees of health issues but if they were to catch this it would be bad and she has a new daughter if she was to catch it it would be bad so I haven't seen them in a while just because I work with the public and I don't want them getting sick so but yes separation anxiety it it sucks for everybody so once she landed she was greeted by the mayor of this town he had done the original investigation onto the missing ship and offered to help with hers she didn't speak norwegian so she would so he would conduct the interviews himself for her he told her it would take three weeks which saddened her since she was away from her child, but it did give her adequate time to herself. She did some more sightseeing, met some people, went to a few parties, and began riding again. Oh, no. It wasn't the Minnesota trip. It was when my kids went to my dad's for two weeks. Oh, yeah, that was... No, it was was a whole week. It was supposed to be two weeks, and you couldn't handle not being around them for two weeks, so you cut it down to one week. Yes. My bad. That's fine. You blocked it out of your memory because it was, was horrible. I mean, they, I, toward the end, I got tired of them texting me and calling me 50 times a day. Yes. But I still didn't like not being able to hug and kiss them goodnight every night. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. Sorry. That's perfect. <laughs> so, okay. She began writing again. Not letters to Emily. As the day passed, Mary slowly returned to the ideas that had interested her before she met Gilbert. The rights of the individual, the relationship of the citizens to the state, the course of French politics, women's equality. She had always inserted personal reflections and colloquialisms into her political and historical work, but now she turned her her style almost entirely inside out. Instead of writing primarily about politics and history with a few personal asides, she told the story of her love affair with Emily and of her journey to Scandinavia integrating philosophical observations and political theories into her own experiences. The result was an original mix of personal narrative and political science, travel writing, and philosophical commentary. She described her broken heart, even as she discussed her thoughts on the history of human society. She reveled in the beauties of nature, and at the same time, she recalled the atrocities of the terror in France. She was scarcely aware that she was breaking rules as a writer. What mattered was the old forms could no longer contain all she wanted to say. Most important, she lost interest in berating Gilbert. He would have to rediscover his love for her on his own. She decided, trusting that when they met in Europe, he, as he had promised, they would have a joyful reunion. Hmm. Turns out, that the captain of the ship had stolen it and the silver. And even though there was plenty of evidence to convict and get reparations, the community was so wrought with corruption that they refused to do anything about it, and Mary was forced to go home empty-handed. As she sailed back to Sweden, she hoped that Maybe Gilbert would come to his senses and realize that she and their daughter what was was what was important. The strength she had gained had only intensified her resolve to regain Emily's love. She was a better philosopher than he was in their battles. 
Her points were accurate and ethically superior. She would make him return to her. She, she had decided she would win the case against him. And in doing so, she would win his love again. Because that's, that's how love works, right? You'd be you're, right. You're philosophical about it. You put up a good argument and that's how things are done. Especially when you're talking with somebody who isn't as smart as you. Was it Albert Einstein that said, or maybe it was Mark Twain, never get in a fight with a stupid person because you can't win? Yes. They bring you down to their level. Yes. This is one of the this is one of the times And they'll I'm, beat you with experience. This is one of the times when I'm going, No, you're smarter than that. Don't don't think that you can get him to come back to you with philosophy and, and ethical reasoning. Because it's that type of shit doesn't work. It's kinda like she's trying to brainwash him into coming back. It feels or like well, manipulate him. You're you're trying to use facts and reasoning for something that is purely emotional yeah. and those two the emotion and facts and feelings and, and and your mind don't go together hardly ever so you're probably not going to win somebody back with philosophy and facts so when mary got back to sweden in the third week of august she was handed three letters from emily each one worse than the last. They said, paraphrasing, that he didn't love her, she needed to move on and realize that they had very little in common, but he would do what he could for Fanny, and he would try to be kind to her. Of course, Mary wrote Gilbert back, lambasting him. She couldn't understand why he needed to treat her so poorly. She fell back into her depression. It's pretty much all that strength that she had built up. While she was gone, three letters from him, gone like that. Yeah, when you're told that <clears throat> you're no longer loved. I'll, that try, kinda... I'll be good to the kid and I'll try to be kind to you. It's, uh, it's, kind, of a sh it's kind of a shot to the dick. Yeah, that, that would definitely put somebody in a depression. On their way <clears throat> back home, Mary, Marguerite, and Fanny traveled through Copenhagen. A recent fire had almost burned the entire city down. Mary wrote that if the people would have worried more about just putting out the fire and saving the homes rather than all their materialistic possessions inside, the fire could have been stopped much sooner. Her stance against commerce and materialism was growing by the day. Pretty much all of Copenhagen almost burnt to the ground because people were so worried about saving all their possessions rather than putting the fire out and saving their actual homes. I mean, that I'd let you be in charge of trying to put the fire out while I'm saving all my books. And how about we get the kids and the pets out first? Uh, anything that is that we can't go out and, you know, rebuy like pictures that we have that we wouldn't be able to, to get anywhere else. Things like that. Um, little keepsakes. Then we start worrying about books that we could easily go back out and rebuy. Yeah, but there's some stuff in my Harry Potter collection that I can't rebuy. Again, we, there's other things to worry about first. <laughs> but I, I, I get it. I get it. But yeah, the, I mean, the whole community, you know. Yeah. Yes, that's fucked up. Well, there was little Mary could do to get Gilbert off her mind. She hoped to speak to him and convince him that he was wrong when they landed in Dover the first week of October, but he was not there. 
And even though she wrote to him demanding he show himself, and they stayed there waiting for days, he never arrived. When they finally arrived back in London, she went straight to Gilbert and demanded to talk to him. They spoke, but of course Gilbert denied any wrongdoing. None of this was his fault. It all came down to her asking too much of him. He was so upset, he refused to talk to her for more than a week. Maybe more, even more than that. Not really sure. Most of what uh, we're basing the story on is her writings and, and other people's writings. So we, we know it was at least a week between the times they talked after she came back. And, you know, what the fuck? And he's like, I didn't do anything. You're crazy. And I'll talk to you in a week. <laughs> it was at least a week, maybe more. And this was a horrible, torturous time for Mary. The worst thing he could do is not speak to her. So she did something she wasn't very proud of. She went down and coerced, coerced the cook into telling her exactly where he was. The cook tried as she could to not tell Mary, but Mary was, again, very persuasive. She used philosophy and facts. Turns out, what do you think Gilbert's been doing? Uh, going to horses? No. Living a secret life with another woman. Gilbert was living with a young French actress. She found out where he was staying and headed straight over, but when she got there, she had a strange compromise. Now, do you remember the story I told you about uh, her falling in love with Henry Fusili and wanting this to move in with them? What she had requested was instead of Gilbert leaving his mistress, her and Fanny move in with them. Mary could have the conversations with Gilbert she so longed for, and Fanny could have the fa her father in her life full time. Took a lot of talking. Gilbert finally started to see things her way. Manipulative. But the mistress, whose name we are never told, was much more conventional than one would think. She said there was no way she was living with this crazy woman and her daughter, and she banished Mary from the house. So, sound familiar? Yes, it does. This rejection was too much for Mary to bear. She had come to the realization that suicide was the ultimate form of protest. You rally against something so much that you literally give up your life for it. She had been unsuccessful in her first attempt, but she was determined to be successful in her second. She wrote a letter to Gilbert explaining that she wanted the nice German family to raise her daughter that we talked about in episode two. Gave Fanny a kiss, left her in the arms of Marguerite, and took off for the Putney Bridge. When she got to the bridge, she walked along the railing for a little bit of time, building up the courage, and then finally jumping in. She had looked around to make sure nobody had noticed, but suicides off the Putney, Bri the Putney Bridge were becoming more and more commonplace. The Royal Humane Society had recently put out a reward to anybody who rescued suicides. Just so happened that two fishermen were on the river for just that reason. They found Mary floating down the river, swept her up, took her to the nearest bar, and resuscitated her. It only took them a few hours to get a hold of Gilbert, but it was not Gilbert who showed up to bring her home. Instead, it was Rebecca Christie, the wife of Thomas Christie, 
part owner of the Analytical Review. She went and stayed with them for a short time while she regained her strength. Her and Gilbert exchanged letters throughout this time. Her not understanding why Gilbert was doing what he was doing. Gilbert trying to get her to see his side of things and that they were better off apart. She tried again to convince them that she should live, that they should live together as one big, happy family. Mary and Gilbert thought it was a fine idea. Again, the mistress, however, would not budge on the subject and, again, banished Mary from the house. She had had enough of Mary and her antics. She wanted out, so she nagged and complained to Gilbert until he moved them both to Paris. In the winter, he tried to send Mary money. She obviously refused. That's another one of those times where it's like, come on. Is it really worth killing yourself over? Just some dude? No, never. <laughs> Took you a while, a lot longer to, to answer that than I thought it would. But something had finally shifted for Mary. Perhaps it was the at 18 months old, Fanny could say a few words and reach her arms out to her mother, giving Mary a powerful incentive to recover from her despair. Perhaps she had realized that Emily was not the man she thought he was, or perhaps the self-reflection in Scandinavia had taught her more than she had realized. She demanded her letters back from Emily and tried to use them to write a novel about their love affair. But the material was too close to home, so she began developing another idea. She would not fictionalize her experience. Instead, she would edit her letters from Scandinavia and turn her broken heart into a book that would honestly examine her struggle with despair. It would be a travelogue and reflection, an observation and self-examination. When at length she sat down to write, she realized that the project had been in the back of her mind all along. Travel writing was traditionally a male genre, but Mary had reviewed more than 20 travel books for Johnson before she left for Paris, and she felt confident she could write an account of her experience that would be beneficial to her readers and that would find and they would find it fascinating. Yes, Emily had broken her heart, but she had been rescued, brought back to life. She did not know why, but maybe there was a reason. One that she would find if she started writing again. With each paragraph, she felt her energy returning. Just as it always had, writing was giving Mary a new purchase on life. She began to go out in the evenings with Rebecca Christie, her trusted companion. But more important, she woke up in the morning anticipating the day of work that lay ahead. At times, she even caught herself wondering what the future might now hold for her. By December, she was finished. Joseph Johnson published Mary Wollstonecraft's Letters Written During a Short Residence in Sweden, Norway, and Denmark in January 1796. Again, with, with the titles of the fucking book. Yeah, very, very long. But you know what you're getting. Yeah, because it's the entire book yeah. in the title. <laughs> What's this book about? Letters written during a short residence in Sweden, Norway, and Denmark. But what is it really about? I mean, what is the underlying tone? Letters written during a short residence in Sweden, Norway, and Denmark. Yes. <laughs> but it's good that she's finally... She, there's nothing more horrible than waking up in the morning and, and just begrudgingly just wanting the day to be over already. Just hating waking up in the morning because you know what you're going to have to... Anticipations of the day. And she's waking up happy and excited for what the day's going to bring. It, it, it's 
I haven't felt that in a long time with, with, you know, having to work as a fucking adult. I don't think most adults do. So that must be nice waking up being excited for the day. Yes. Yes. Readers were instantly captivated by the more personal style Mary had adopted, and the book sold briskly, earning more money than any of her er earlier works, and was translated into German, Dutch, Swedish, and Portuguese. Even though some critics carped at the book's unorthodox mixture of sediment, philosophy, and personal real personal revelation and politics, the inclusion of Mary's reflections and feelings allowed readers to feel connected to her, while at the same time they learned about places they would probably never see. Letters from Sweden, as we will call it to make it shorter, is a reflective, innovative book, an emotional but philosophical announcement of the author's artistic goals, her intonation of an artistic revolution. As one modern critic puts it, Mary's revolutionary feminism allowed her to transform the genre of travel writing. Many people were critical of how it veered so vehemently from the traditional travel logs at the time, but over time, it had become to be seen as an important part of literary history and would also be looked at as one of the founding books of Romanticism. December of 1795, she had a dinner with an inspiring writer that had seeked her out for a for advice named Mary Hayes. There's your other Mary. They became fast friends and had much in common, including the fact that they were both nursing a broken heart. Hayes would console herself with her writing and talking to some of her male friends, including a one William Godwin. Ooh. You remember we talked about him, I believe it was the second episode, about how she uh, they met at a party and she, continued, she ignored him and... Uh, Every time he tried to get a word in inchwise, she would interrupt him, and they yes. did not like each other very much. Yes. Uh, and it, he had actually met, they had met each other at the Christie's house. So it all kind of comes back around at one of their parties. Hayes thought that they should meet. Neither approved, both remembering their one and only encounter, but Hayes persisted, and on January 8th, I put down 1976, not 1976, 1796, <laughs> they met to have tea. It started out poorly. Today's episode is brought to you by our brand new exclusive discount code for thebeardstruggle.com. Gentlemen, have you grown out that beard? Or are you just starting? Well, if you're like me, you began to notice pretty quickly that the skin underneath all that hair can get pretty dry and flaky. And trust me when I tell you, Beard dandruff sucks. And the people over the beard struggle know this and have made it their life's work to develop the best products to make growing and keeping that beard as painless as possible. Over time, the ingredients in their formulas have proven themselves, not just because their customers have had enormous success with them, but because they have worked for centuries. They use 100% natural ingredients, never test on animals, and promise a 90-day money-back guarantee. From the day and night oils, the shampoos and conditioners, all the way to the ingenious beard straightener. They have everything you need to tame that face fur, and I use them. My beard has never looked, felt, or smelled better. Just ask my wife. So go to thebeardstruggle.com, all one word, or click on our link in the show notes, and use our new exclusive discount code, AUDIO15, at checkout for 15% off. That's A-U-D-I-O-1-5 for 15% off your entire order. Go now and feast your face!
Godwin remembering Mary's over-the-top personality and Mary remembering Godwin's judgmental and unfriendly ways. But times had changed both of them. Godwin was was a little more out of his shell. And Mary, after many months of heartache and traveling, had softened a little bit. She didn't interrupt people mid-sentence anymore and would instead listen instead of just talking. They began to see that they had more in common than they thought. It didn't hurt, so that the, the time period, Mary was seen as very beautiful. Even though one eyelid drooped slightly because of a past illness. You look through that type of stuff, I guess. She was still seen as voluptuous. She would, we would say, you know, curvy. Thick. That is the new word. Thick. I'm thick. Godwin was inexperienced and more concerned with matters of the mind, but he did like women and the way they looked. Godwin even rushed out and bought letters, which was cap- and he was captivated from the very first page. They began going out of their way to see one another more often. Godwin had many female admirers for his ideas, not his looks, but they loved his mind. Mary now became one of these fairs as they were called. Groupies. Pretty much, yeah. And he, she quickly became his favorite groupie. You go, girl. One of these fairs was Mar- Maria Reveille, who will become one of Mary's closest friends and down the road become a friend of Mary's youngest daughter. Who I don't have a whole lot to say about uh, Maria Reveille in, on, on this uh, series. We'll talk about her daughter later, her youngest, not Fanny, her youngest daughter. And um, it'll all kind of come back around at some point. I think I know who her youngest daughter is. Well, you'll find out later. Godwin, who didn't believe in marriage, now find found himself needing to be closest to Mary. He started dressing better. He cut his hair. He would take his fares to the opera and to dinner and parties. He was still stiff at times, the bore, but that didn't matter to Mary. He was brilliant. She asked him to look over a play she was writing. He did and criticized the entire thing. Uh, Mary didn't get upset. She simply asked him to help her with her spelling and punctuation and her grammar. She was not. She didn't have the best grammar because, again, she wasn't taught. Formally yeah. educated. Asking for help on her writing was one of Mary's go-to moves when she wanted to be close to someone. She did it with Jane. She did it with Fanny Blood. And now she was doing it with William. He helped her. They worked very close with one another. The play never went anywhere, and she set it aside, but the flame between the two had been lit. Well, if you're in close proximity of someone for so long, then feelings are going to develop. I think the good, uh, the great thing about Mary, all all the men out there listening should should love Mary simply for the fact that she doesn't give two shits what you look like. She is one of the very few women out there that it's more it's more based on your your brains than it is on your looks. You you raise your hand, but I got little of either, so I don't know what the fuck you're doing. Mary started working on a companion piece to Vindication called The Wrongs of Women. In this new work, she wanted to dramatize the plight of the abused and abandoned females, exposing the falseness and popular 
of popular novels in which feminine weakness was glorified and the heroine's suffering was a cue for the hero's entrance. Old damsel in distress, knight coming to save her from the dragon's tower, all that type of shit. In many ways, this was the plot that had almost killed her. She had invested she had invested Emily with all the powers of a hero, giving him the opportunity to rescue her with her first suicide attempt. But he was no hero and would not becoming one and would not become one no matter how long she played the role of the helpless female. To survive, she had been forced to give up the hope that he would one day save her and without the tools of writing and self-reflection, she might have failed. Now, she wanted readers to see how dangerous this formula could be. Women needed to be able to stand alone. Men should not be seen as the rescuers of women. Giving them that kind of power could only all too easily make them brutes. Mary wanted readers to have a visceral experience of the suffering of women. At the same time, she was intent on exploring the psychology of her heroines to show their response to the harrowing experiences and some of the reasons for their destructive decisions. Her ultimate hope was to help her readers see the necessity for reform. If women continued to be infantilized, society would spiral downward. That July, she began to map out the plot of her new novel. While Godwin left for vacation in Norfolk, having spent much of their time together during the previous months, both parties brooded over their relationship while apart. Although, by now they recognized something more than a friendship had begun, both were reluctant to declare themselves. Mary, because she did not want to display too much ardor for fear of outrunning, as she said, Godwin, Godwin, because he was all too well aware of what a poor figure he cut next to Emily. He was, Emily was, you know, a big, strong American businessman, exotic American, and uh, William was short, pudgy, weird hair. I think, when I think of William Godwin, I kind of think of, not so much the pudgy part, because he's not pudgy, but I think of Bernie Sanders. <laughs> I love Bernie Sanders, but that's when the pictures I saw and, and how they describe him, I kind of think, because Bernie doesn't give a fuck. You've seen many pictures of Bernie with his hair just wherever. Yes. He doesn't give a shit. All that matters is what he's saying. His looks don't fucking matter. That's how That's how I feel. That, that's what I think about when I think about Godwin. Kind of think about Bernie Sanders. Yeah, that I, I guess that, that makes sense. He was a virgin. Very awkward around women. He wrote her a love poem earlier that year, but it was timid, and Mary told him more or less to tell her exactly how he felt or shut up about it. Aww. He was beating around the bush, and she just wanted him to be very direct. Godwin didn't take criticism well, but later, while in Norfolk, he tried again. Still wasn't great, but Mary could see what he was trying to say. Mary recognized that his uh, mask that he wore over his anxiety was understandable. After all, she had been in his position only three years earlier. In addition, there was a certain appeal to this reversal. She, the confident lover, Godwin, the nervous virgin. Yet, for all their long walks and conversations, for all the hours spent confiding their fears and dreams to each other, 
it was still difficult for her to consider being vulnerable again, particularly with a famous man who already had a flock of female ad uh, admirers. The fact that he already had a flock of female ad admirers kind of makes it hard to believe that he was a virgin. No. It's not hard to believe at all. It really isn't. Because that's just not, that's not something he built into his schedule. He was a routine man. Everything was down to to the, the second. He had no time for that. Everything that he cared about was philosophical, mental. Um, there was no time for emotion or uh, physicality. And, and you don't think he ever got drunk and got a handy or a BJ? No. That's No, I don't. And again, I, I leave a lot of this out because the book's long. And there's a lot. Of, there's some books written about Godwin, but uh, no, no. If you did do any look, look him up at all. Nope, I don't think for one second he ever did anything. I, I'd be surprised if he even ever kissed a woman before he met Mary. Tell you the truth. Mm. Yeah. Okay. God re Godwin returned four days late, causing uh, Mary to question whether or not he was like Emily more than she had thought. He wasn't, obviously, but Mary was insecure. Godwin went straight to her, and they were finally able to reveal their true feelings. That August, and here's one reason why I say you're wrong, on their fourth try, they were finally able to consummate their relationship. And it was their fourth try because the other three, Godwin couldn't bring up the courage to do anything even though Mary was obviously wanting to. Okay. Because of the times, they had to hide the affair, which was difficult. They also kept working. Mary had Godwin review an early copy of Wrongs, which didn't go over well. She was much too extreme for him, and she had sloppy grammar. He wanted her to work on the play, but even though she respected Godwin... She was not about to abandon wrongs. Their relationship wasn't without its troubles, just like any. There's a lot of back and forth and fights that I'm not going to get into because it's just spats between lovers. But as winter, as winter moved in, Mary found herself to be more irritable and surly. She's pregnant. And in December, she found out why. She was pregnant. With child. Godwin was overjoyed. Question was what to do. Godwin was famously against marriage. And Mary was still known as Mrs. Emily. So they kept it a secret for a while. Godwin, and again, I don't really get into it. Godwin loved Fanny. Her daughter. He loved her like his own child. So she she meets a guy who, even though his outlook on marriage and everything wasn't exactly regular as you know for the times, he loved being in this family. You know, it went completely against everything he'd ever talked about before. He fell in love with Mary, and he fell in love with with her with her daughter. So when he found out he was going to have one of his own. He was very happy about it. That's awesome. And of course, they kept the pregnancy quiet 
can only keep a pregnancy quiet for so long. Yes. Now, if you're a 500-pound woman, you could probably keep it quiet until the day you give birth. Mary was curvy, but she wasn't that curvy to where she could hire an entire pregnancy. They kept it quiet until about the end of March when it was clear to everyone that she was pregnant. So on March 29th, they walked to St. Pancras Church and got married. There was no party, as neither were very happy about the situation. In fact, Godwin went to the theater and Mary went home to pack. They were moving in together. Another situation that neither were all too happy about. But they had had a compromise. Godwin would help with the day-to-day housework, and he would be able to rent a room down the street so he could work uninterrupted for a few hours a day. That was their compromise. Uh-huh. They were building a new house, and they were building a new house in a new area called the Polygon. And it was called that way because that the, the streets there, the houses, they were built in a way that the area looked like a polygon, obviously. Okay. The Times had posted an article about the marriage and that they were no longer able to hide it from friends and family. Most were outraged, not all. Mary Hayes and Joseph Johnson stood by them. And by the end of April, Godwin's mood had changed from one of reluctance and having his routine changed and life upended to one of happiness to come home to the woman he loved, the stepdaughter he loved, and the unborn child he loved. Aww. See, I told you everything would could it be good near the end that, that as we went along. It wouldn't all be j- just despair for her. Through the pregnancy and housework, Mary had still managed to dash off articles for a new radical journal, The Monthly Magazine, entitled On Poetry and Our Relish for the Beauties of Nature. On the service, this this essay seems to be a simple reiteration of some of the romantic values Mary had first expressed in Letters from Sweden. The best writing is inspired by nature. Civilization weakens artists because it's di- it distanced them it distanced them from the original source of inspiration. In reality, though, Mary was airing her side of the argument with Godwin that had begun begun over the wrongs of women. Again, she was a little bit more extreme for things than he was. Uh, the arguments like what constitutes good writing, how formal should writing be, how personal. How personal, how imaginative. These were not dry academic questions. Instead, they raised crucial points about education and gender, class and opportunity. In many ways, Mary's reputation as a writer depended on the answers. Lacking any formal training in grammar and styles as she did, Mary claimed that Godwin's insistence on Syntactical accuracy and traditional reticle devices had led him to value form over matter. Mary was advocating for a far more democratic order than Godwin was prepared to accept. She wanted to open the door for more people like herself to join the ranks of writers. An author did not have to be educated at an elite school to properly express his or her ideas. All that was necessary was a good imagination. After she had finished it, she returned to the wrongs of women, refreshed and revitalized, taking a break from reviewing for Johnson to give herself more time for the novel. Her aim, she said in her preface, was to show, quote, The misery and oppression, peculiar to women, that arise out of the partial laws and customs of society. She began the story with Maria, the heroine, 
named after Helen Maria Williams, waking up inside a mental asylum. The cries and wild shrieks of the mad men and women also probably hark back to Mary's teenage years living near Hoxton Asylum. Maria's husband has committed her to the asylum, not because she's crazy, but because he wants her fortune and because she has resisted his efforts to sell her into sexual slavery. Maria has a sympathetic attendant named Jemima, who recounts her own story of sexual abuse at the hands of evil masters, a groundbreaking moment for an English novel as Mary allows Jemima, the working-class female, to tell her own dark tale. By having both Maria and Jemima tell their stories, Mary Mary showed that it did not matter whether a woman was rich or poor. Either way, she faced the injustice encoded in the English common law. Jemima could not prosecute her abusers. Her masters had the legal right to rape her and victimize her. The same was true for the upper-class Maria. Her husband had the right to tyrannize her, despite her wealth and social status. In fact, this is probably one reason why Mary had difficulty developing the plot. Female imprisonment is a necessarily static condition. Unfortunately, Mary will never get to finish wrongs. Did she die giving birth? No. Oh, okay. <clears throat> On the morning, <laughs> this is a, I, I tell you, this is a this is a a podcast of butts. Everything's great, but but just that one, just that one little butt. On the morning of August thirtieth, Mary woke to the first flutters of labor. As in Scandinavia, she did not summon a doctor. She believed the odds were in her favor. Fanny's birth had gone briskly without any complications. She was expecting the same with this one. So she had found a midwife with a good reputation, a Miss Blekensop, although she did not think she would have much for her to do. She sent Godwin to his office as usual. After a few hours, the contractions began became steady enough for her to write, to him, write him a note saying, quote, I have no doubt of seeing the animal today. They would they would call it the animal. They would call the baby. Um, they called it Will for a long time because they just assumed it was going to be a boy. So a lot of, so through the book, a lot of times you'll hear them talk about young William, and that's that's who they're talking about. They're talking about the baby. She had also asked him to send over some light reading, a book or newspaper for the long wait in between tr- contractions. However, despite her optimistic prognostication. At at midday, she was still pacing the room of the house, the rooms of the house. The labor was progressing much more slowly than it had with Fanny. At 2 o'clock, she went up to her bedchamber and summoned the midwife, writing Godwin to tell him the baby would be born soon, and then repeated her mother's dying words, quote, I must have a little patience. Never repeat somebody's dying words. It's, It's a bad omen. But the baby did not come soon. Mary had nine more hours of labor to endure. And this was before epidural. This is before painkiller. You you want a painkiller, you get a mallet to the head. That's about it. None of that existed. So she's going through all this naturally. For all you mothers out there or fathers out there who watched your significant other go through it, not fun. Godwin dined with the Reveille's and did not come home until after dark. 
But Mary told him to stay out. Only to find Mary still upstairs, enduring contractions. The baby was not born until almost midnight on August 30th, 1797. The midwife invited Godwin to meet his child. Not a boy, like they thought, but a tiny, weak-looking baby girl. Mary was too tired to speak, but Godwin stayed by her side, holding their little daughter and rejoicing in her safe delivery. Until the midwife shooed him out because Mary still needed to deliver the placenta. After two more hours, however, there was still no afterbirth, leaving Mary at risk of developing an infection. Mrs. Blackensop alerted Godwin, who leapt into a carriage with, quote, despair in my heart and raced to the Westminster Hospital to bring back a doctor. Godwin and Dr. Poignad P-O-I-G-N-A-N-D Poignad Okay. (laughs) You're on the edge of your seat. I know, just keep going. Uh, They arrived back at the Polygon shortly before dawn and the doctor went right to work. For those of you who have had a child, this will probably be the worst part of the story for you. And when I say had a child, I mean the women. Because no matter what the man sees, he can't imagine this. He went to work ripping out shreds of the placenta without any anesthetic, causing Mary the greatest pain she had ever experienced. Literally shoving his hands into her vagina, grabbing whatever of the placenta or whatever he grabbed, and ripping it out piece by piece. <laughs> this is not a visual medium. This is all audio, so you can't see my, my wife. Hurts. You can't see my wife squirming in her chair with a look of anguish on her face. <laughs> she fainted repeatedly at and at times wanted to die. But, quote, determined not to leave. At last, after many hours, the doctor assured them that he had extracted everything. Relieved, Mary finally slept. But the damage had been done. You see, germ theory wasn't really a thing at that point. In fact, it wasn't a thing... For a very long time, germ theory didn't really become a thing until Grover Cleveland was shot. Was it Cleveland or Garfield? Cleveland was shot and killed. The doctor then told everybody, we got to start washing stuff. It's germs that are killing them and nobody wanted to believe them. One of the doctors during the Spanish flu was actually thrown in an asylum and beat half to death for even suggesting that people wash their hands. This was a couple centuries before that. So, when the doctor got to their house and started shoving up his hands up inside Mary, he had neglected to wash them first. Yeah, no dirty hands in my vagina. Everything was fine. For the first couple days, the baby nursed. Mary napped and began to make plans for the weekend ahead. The first order of business was to find a nursemaid. Godwin's sister had a friend, Louisa Jones, who was interested in the position. On Sunday, she brought her to the Polygon for an interview. But 
While the two women waited downstairs, a dreadful banging began to shake the walls. Mary had developed a sudden fever and was shivering so badly that her iron bed bumped across the floorboards, rattling the whole house. An anguished Godwin sent for Dr. Fordyce at once, the different doctor. His sister and Louisa fled, and the household geared to meet the crisis. It did not take Dr. Freudus long to diagnose the problem. Prupriol, or childbed fever. The baby could no longer feed from Mary because of the infection, but Mary's breasts were still filled with milk. So, you remember the other day when we were sitting, you were sitting on the couch and you were oohing and on because there was a baby skunk nursing off a, either a dog or a cat? Mm -hmm. you know, and it's so cute. And I said, remember that for when we cover Mary, uh, Wollstonecraft 3. Her breasts were still filled with milk. The baby couldn't nurse on them. So, they had to bring in puppies to nurse off of Mary. Oh. Oh, that's different than a skunk nursing off a cat. That was cute now, is it? No, but the, <laughs> the, the puppies would get the infection too. Better the puppies than the baby. Neither. Just fucking milk her boob like a fucking cow. Well, you go back in time and tell them. Can you milk a boob like a cow? You can self-milk. I've done it. I've squirted people in the eye. <laughs> But not to the point where you get every ounce of milk out of your breast. No, but you can... And they didn't have pumps back then. No, but you... If you, you massage your breast, the milk comes out. They used puppies. Not oh Jerry Lawler's puppies. So the next time you hear Jerry Lawler go, Puppies! It's going to be a completely different image in your head. Oh, my God. <laughs> they lied to her, told her she would be fine. But by that next Friday, she knew something wasn't right. Godwin told her the truth. She was going to die. And she did. A little before 8 in the morning on September 10th, 1797. She was buried at the same church they were wet at on the 15th. But that is not the end. Godwin, hurt and alone with two young children, decided he was the best to write her story even though he only knew her for really the last 18 months of her life. September 24th, nine days after the funeral, which he did not attend, Godwin recorded in his diary that he had finished the first two pages of a memoir of the author of The Vindication, the book that would ruin Mary's reputation for almost 200 years. He spent hours sifting through Mary's unpublished manuscript, and to the horror of future scholars, he burned the play she had worked on during her, their first summer together, deeming it unworthy of Mary's talents. He made, he made a note of not interviewing most of Mary's friends or her sisters. As a result, the book reads like a page-turning gothic drama, not an analytic study. Mary suffers at the hand of her despotic father, falls in love with Lucille, flees to France to escape his rejection, has a child out of wedlock, tries to kill herself twice, only at the end of it, only at the end of her life, does she find happiness. And this happiness was, of course, with Godwin. He's not too far off. 
but no, he's but leaving so much he out of out it. Everything that makes her special. Yes, he turns her into a crazy woman, which she kind of was. Yeah, but like that's I said, he's all not he, too far. That's off. all he focuses on. In the course of this, not only did he neglect her philosophical influence, he ignored the final essay Mary wrote on poetry and our relish for the beauties of nature, her clearest articulation of her goals as a writer. Thus, readers of a memoir never learn that Mary believed that authors should strive for the power and honesty that comes from nature rather than an artificial correctness of structure and style. They never read that she wanted to reach readers' emotions and passions not just their intellect as Godwin had written in his Political Justice, which is the book he wrote. While going through her papers for memoir, Godwin had discovered the unfinished novel, The Wrongs of Women, as well as the passages she had cut from her letters to Emily. The long strings of insults, the repetitive catalogs of suffering, her rage at his abandonment. By removing these sections from the final version of Letters from Sweden, Mary had demonstrated literary judgment of the highest order, but Godwin did not heed his wife's decisions. He pieced the passages back together and published them as sections of a new book he entitled The Posthumous Works of the Author of Vindications of the Rights of Women. So all that stuff that she didn't want the world to see, the neurotic side, the crazy side, the I you're yelling at a man because she doesn't want to be he doesn't want to be with her side, she wanted to leave out, he shows it to the world. He edited several Mary's other works, most notably her essay on poetry, diluting her ideas to make them less radical and reshaping the essay to conform to his own notions about what constituted good writing. Many of these revisions were Godwin's misguided attempt to make his wife seem more acceptable to the public and to help the book sell. Desperate to raise enough money to settle Mary's bills and his own, he signed over the copyright to Johnson, who agreed to pay off Mary's creditors in return. After Posthumous Works went on sale in the spring of 1798, any standing that Wollstonecraft had retained after Godwin's memoir was almost entirely eradicated. Gone were the professional author and the political correspondent, the hard-edged philosopher and the educational innovator, and the bold businesswoman who single-handedly supported her family and friends. Gone, too, were the loving mother, the sensible partner, and the empathetic lover. In her place was a crazed, self-destructive, sex-starved radical. If one looks up prostitution in the index of the Anti-Jacobin Review, the entry reads, See Mary Wollstonecraft. Dude! Experts warned parents against letting their daughters read Wollstonecraft's books, claiming her words could promote suicide, foster illicitness, and destroy the very fabric of decent society. Her reputation wouldn't be rightfully fixed until the 1970s, thanks to the Equal Rights Movement. Oh, yes. And a, and a huge thanks to one of the biggest writers of this time that comes up, not in the 1970s, a little earlier than that, who loved Mary Wollstonecraft and saw her for who she was and used her as an inspiration for her own writing, Virginia Woolf. Virginia Woolf was a huge proponent for Mary Wollstonecraft. 
Yeah, and she's and it, also a feminist too. And so when all the fem and when the feminist movement really kicked in the late 60s, all through the 70s into the early 80s, Mary Wollstonecraft finally started to get back what she was owed. People, you know, the women were reading that going, no, what she's saying is right. All this other stuff doesn't matter. What she's saying is right. Yes. And her her reputation is finally fixed about 50 years ago. So 200 years went by where she, almost 200 years went by, where she was... Oppressed by a fucking man that she had sex with. Godwin, Godwin had no idea what he was doing to her reputation. He thought he was doing a good thing. He thought he was helping her by putting it all back together because he didn't understand what she was trying to do. His brain worked completely differently. It'd be like if you try if you wrote all this stuff and then Sheldon Cooper came in to put it all back together. He would do it the way he thought it was best, even though that wouldn't be the best way. So I I have a hard time, you know, yelling at Godwin about it. He should have just left it the fuck alone. He should have. He should have never posted the rest of her stuff. Because he took it upon himself to write her memoir when it should have been up to about a dozen other people. He, yeah, he knew better. He refused he... to talk to her sisters about it. He refused to talk to Johnson, really, about it. Um, Fusilli wouldn't talk to him about it. Uh, the only people he would talk to were the men in her life. He wouldn't talk to any of the women. And uh, he said he didn't interview any of her he friends or family. He didn't interview anybody. He just went off of the stories she told him. Yeah, so he knew better. With the intelligence level that he had, he knew he should have just left it alone. Yes. But he wanted money. He got he, greedy. He needed the money because they had a lot of bills that had built up because of her and because of him. And now he had two two kids to take care of. Because remember, he is taking on the responsibility of raising not just his child, but the child Mary had with another man before he came along. That's a big responsibility to take on all alone. It is, so, but that yeah, doesn't I, give I you under, the right. I understand. He knew what he was doing. I understand him trying to get the money for it. I don't agree in how he went about it. They could have easily written a memoir about her life if they all would have gotten together and done it. But I think he knew that if he did that, other people would probably want the money too, and he needed to keep it for himself. Again, I can't blame Godwin for every single little thing, but he really fucks up. And uh, and it's pretty much all his responsibility. that, or uh, He's pretty much responsible for the 200 years of her being a pariah. Really. Yes, but I... So you might be asking. Fuck you, Godwin. <laughs> you might be asking, well, what happens to Godwin after Mary dies? What happens to Fanny? What about the little baby? This show, with with things constantly changing in the economy, who knows when what work I'll have to do later, and I'm hoping that we can keep this show going for a very long time. So in about six months to a year, I have I have a bunch of authors scheduled out at certain times when I want to do them. And I didn't want to jump on this one right after because it's going from one to, to the other and it's just a, that's a lot. So I want to wait some time. So in about six months to a year, I plan on coming back around and covering Godwin Fanny and their baby. Uh, William and, and, and Mary's baby. Who is also ma named Mary. Mary. She's Mary Godwin. I will cover her. Her, we will, I'm sorry, we will cover her. Her childhood. 
her, her teenage years, up until she meets a young man uh, named Percy. And she will go on to write one of, if not the most influential, most adaptated, and probably what many would call the very first horror novel. The book, Frankenstein. That little baby, Mary Shelley. Yes, I knew that. So, again, in six months to a year, you will finally get to find out. And some of the people that you've heard about in this story, Maria Reveille, um, if you remember the young, uh, the oldest of the children that she took care of at Lady K's, she will come back into play in uh, Mary Shelley's story. So some of the people in this story, you will hear again in that story. So we'll remind you when to listen. You know, you can listen to this whole series again when we come back to Mary Shelley. So you're all up to date with everything. But I'll, I'm sure I'll probably get a recap while we're going through. But so we got you got that to look forward to. I don't know how many people knew that or saw that one coming, but I thought it was fun. I did. Yeah, I know you did, but we had talked about it before. <laughs> well, no, I knew Mary Wollstonecraft and Mary Shelley yeah. before. So. so, well, it's all over. What did you think? I loved it. I love her. I mean, I already knew about her. But, like, what people don't understand is most of the authors that we've covered so far, I know a little bit about, but... You didn't know anything about Robert E. Howard. Or Burroughs. Well, no, I I think I knew a little bit about her, Burroughs. But no, like Mark Twain and yeah. uh, Harper Lee and stuff. I, I knew some about their lives growing up and everything. Um but what makes this show so interesting is you go into deeper depths to bring out more information. Yeah. There's, no, there's no point in doing a show telling everybody things that they already know. You need to find out the stuff that you didn't know. Yes, and I love it. Because that's where the inspiration for the books comes from. It's from their life, from everything that they go through. And yes. if you don't know that, then who gives a shit about what the book's about? I mean, because they write so many books. Well, except for Harper Lee, she was a uh, one did, and done. Well, she, she did the, the. Technically, I guess you could say she did the two, but she tried to do another one. The, the crime novel, true crime novel, didn't go through. She never got any credit for Truman Capote's book, but yeah. So pretty much, it's the one, and then the manuscript that led to the other one. Yeah, so, yeah. but all these other authors, they write so many, and you have this whole timeline of every all these events that happen in their lives and you can yeah. see it unfold in their books. Yeah. Yeah. And that, I mean, that's, and that's going to be a co continuing theme through most of the authors that we're ever going to cover, even including the next off. I'm excited we, for I, him. I, I know you are. I'm, we're not going to give no anything. Spoilers. Give anything away, but uh, let's just say we've had a lot of series so far that have kind of been a little down, a little Mary Wollstonecraft wasn't super depressing, but she did try to kill herself twice. And I want to bring a little comedy. So we're going to cover our first full comedy writer next time. Yeah. I love you. I'm excited for the next series. If it was a weird break just now, it's because I had to edit about five minutes of uh, Stephanie talking because she won't stop giving away who the next author is. I, I said a few clues and he wasn't happy. He's like, no. I'm editing that so out. That, that's I'm all. Everything you say, I'm editing that and, out. And, I, and I'm going to, and I probably did. <laughs>
<laughs> Probably. Okay. Because so, you're meaning me like that. Yeah. So hopefully the next few, I have no idea how many episodes that one's going to be. I'm still finishing up the research and I got to write it all out. So uh, it won't be a big five-parter like Burroughs. Aw. No, it's just, it just won't. I'll tell you why afterwards, but it, it just won't be a big... The life wasn't as chaotic as it was with Burroughs. That's the only reason Burroughs was five parts long is because it was fucking event after event after event. Who we're going to cover, um, you know, starting next week. It's not event after event after event. There's some time spread out between major events that we cover. I'm not going to cover every little fucking turn he takes, you know? Why not? <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I mean, I can if you want to sit here for the next 13 weeks on one author. I can. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm All kidding. right. Let's get to our socials real quick, Stephanie. Okay. On Twitter and Instagram, we are at open a effing book. That's F-I-I-N-G. Mm-hmm. Um, I am at E-C-J-B-A-T, and we are at Audio Parfait. I am Young E-T-A-M-6 on Twitter, just Young E-T-A-M on Instagram. Stephanie finally got up our Goodreads account going. See a lot of books on there. It's got like seven shelves on there that she's read. I haven't put on my stuff that I've read yet. No, one of the shelves is only the books I've read. Okay, yeah, but it's 180 some odd books long. That's just of the ones I own. Okay, okay. So there you go. So go to goodreads.com slash audio parfait to get to our profile and you can see Books that we're reading, um, the the books that I use for research, uh, for past, not the present ones yet. Um, yeah, no spoilers. Yeah, so I, I'm not gonna put up. Uh, I don't think I'm gonna put up the the, the book I'm reading for. Well, uh, yeah, we'll go ahead and put up the Wollstonecraft Shelley book because it's both the Romantic Outlaws is one book for both of them. We'll go ahead and throw that one up there if you guys want to look at. It, you can. It's not gonna, you know, spoils it for you. You can still come on here and listen to what we have to say about it. Um, I haven't put up the books that I read yet, but it's not near as long a list, so it shouldn't take that long. Uh, you can email us at info.audioparfait.com if there's anything you want to talk about. Tell us books you're reading, authors you want us to cover, anything like that. You know, we read everything that comes in. Website is audioparfait.com. You can get all the episodes of this show, uh, all of our back series, including all of our weekday Cliff Note episodes, and you can get. Um, episodes of our other podcast i know it's not real but that had to hurt where we cover wrestling news and rumors and we talk about everything that we love hate and wrestling we do a weekly mount rushmore for sometimes it's it's stuff like best wrestler of all time and sometimes it's silly as well we're gonna have one probably in a few weeks that is the best animal mascot for a wrestler so it's gonna be so we cover everything so if you have anything uh, any Mount Rushmore? El Torito. Like <laughs> no, real animals, oh, not a guy yeah, dressed yeah, yeah. in an animal Damien. suit. Damien. But I will put people dressed in animal outfits on there if you'd like for Mount Rushmore. I'm fine with it. We'll do literally anything. <laughs> Go to our Patreon, uh, Patreon.com/slash/AudioParfait. If you think we deserve a, a dollar here or there, we have different tiers. You can get episodes early, shoutouts on the show, all that stuff. Go to your local bookstore. Go to your local library, buy a book from a local art uh, author. You know, you got twenty bucks. Go spend it. You know, to help somebody else out. Go to your library, volunteer if you can. And uh, I think that's pretty much it for this week. I think so. All right. All right. Well, 
take care of yourself, take care of one another. And between now and the time we get to talk to you again, she's over there with a big smile on her face because she knows what's coming. Do yourself a favor. Go open a fucking book. All right, we'll talk to you later. See ya. Bye, guys. <laughs>